This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on the phone is Michael J. Bobbitt. Michael, thank you for joining me today on Entertainment X. I am so flattered to be here and to get a chance to chat with you. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, the, the work you are doing in theater is so important. And I love uh, the productions you've been a part of, the theaters that you've helped revolutionize and change. I love your forward thinking and forward thinkingness, forward thinking. And your name came, <laughs> came across to me through um, uh, variations of production companies in New York City. And this time with the pandemic and being inside and all the reading and the fascination of the Internet and what we can look up, I just can't wait to jump into everything that you've worked on. I want to take it back to the beginning of time for Michael. What were your theater dreams growing up? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know if I had theater dreams. I think that, you know, when you're a little kid growing up in sort of the neighborhood or the hood, as we call it, um, theater is something that is, is thought of as a career path. And I, I don't know if my dreams were any different than most kids. I think it was like, you know, fire engine or astronaut. Um, <laughs> but the, you, you know what I mean? But yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the adults in my life had, they worked. Uh, it was work. I don't know if they were careers or jobs. I mean, they were jobs, but it was work. It wasn't like a, a passion of theirs. Um, my first experience was as Hansel, in the third act of Hansel and Gretel, yes, there were three of us, and my mom thought I, my mom thought I was the best Hansel. So that's where the bug hit me, and I and I do think that the arts are a vocation, and it calls you more than you call it. So once I got that bug, I just stuck with it. It just was something. The arts in general, music and and trumpet and dance and everything, I just stuck with it. What What did your mother teach you about work ethic? You know, like I said, everyone in my family worked, and they worked hard. I mean, I remember seeing my family come home come home, and just feel tired. So I, I think I grew up knowing that you had to work hard, that, that, that having a relaxing time at work wasn't work. Um, she was in finance. Uh, she worked at a bank, um, and she, you know, ran the house with a strong arm. And so I, I think I took a lot from her um, in that aspect. Um, and not that I'm a strong-armed person, because I actually believe wholeheartedly in collaboration, and I appreciate all the kudos that people are throwing my way, and I'm so curious about all the New York production companies that said, call me, reach out to me, <laughs> but I do, I, I, I do give all props to all the people that I've worked with, because all the decisions we make are collaborative. Yes. What was the, okay, so you were in, you were in Hansel and that was about what age were you when you did that show? And then about what age did you decide to really, you know, like, okay, I, I have to get a job. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm 48 now and, and I think the way, uh, my generation of people grew up, you, you picked your career early on some point in middle school and then you went on a path, which is way different than how I think young people operate today. Um, so, so in first grade, I did the the hustle role, and and uh, then in third grade, I joined the choir and picked up trumpet, and uh, and also dance, um, and so that stuck with me all the way through high school. When I went to high school, I I got I transferred to a from a, from DC public public schools to an all boy Jesuit 
um, predominantly white uh, college prep school, which meant that my like schoolwork was like massive, and I just couldn't keep up with all my arts interests. So I did the theater a little bit, um, but mostly I focused on being a trumpeter. Uh, and I, I got accepted into the National Symphony Orchestra's Youth Fellowship Program. And actually, that was my first career path. So at some point in ninth or 10th grade, it was, I'm going to be a professional trumpeter. Uh, and I went to college on a trumpet scholarship. Uh, and while I was in college, um, the theater sort of kept calling me. And so I went back to do theater and, and, and took a couple of dance classes in college. And I realized that classical trumpet was not what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't as fulfilling as uh, the theater was. Um, but I didn't know I could do theater. So my, my next thing I did was dance. I went back and mm. trained as a classical dancer um, with the Washington Ballet and a little bit with the Dance Theater of Harlem. Um, and uh, you can't see me, but I'm 6'2 and I'm 200 pounds um, at my smallest, <laughs> which is... Um, so not a ballet dancer's body. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but then I shifted, shifted over to musical theater, um, and that's sort of when I realized that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be in theater, and that was about 19 or 20 years old. What was that? Okay, so what was that specific shift to musical theater? Was that just you're sitting in your, your dorm room, you know, debating where to go and what to do? Was there a moment in time that made that shift uh, prevalent? Honestly, it was in ballet class when to get smaller, I was not eating. And I remember going down for a grand plie and had very little energy and could barely get back up. Um, and I was like, I, this is not right. This is not right. So, and, and, and some of that pressure was, was my own pressure of wanting to look like the other dancers in the, in the um, school. Um, but my body was not made for it. So I shifted over to musical theater dance, which was a lot more fun and freeing. And because I had a singing background to be able to add that um, that sort of aspect to the dancing was a lot more fun to me. Um, I think it was, uh, you know, I think at some point in my life, always I go to the things that make, that add happiness to my life. And I think when I left trumpet, it, I was no longer happy playing trumpet. I was happy in the art, but not playing trumpet. And when I left the dance world, I was no longer happy um, feeling the happiness and the joy from just dancing. Uh, and when I decided to stop performing, um, I decided I was no longer, the joy of being a performer wasn't as visceral as being on the other side of the table. Where does that come from for you? Seeking out happiness, adding ha having that conscious decision to find things that add happiness to your life. Well, I think before my early 40s, that seeking of happiness was probably not the, the healthiest way. And I didn't do unhealthy things except eat too much food. Um, but my, but, but I think that the arts was a way to compartmentalize, I think sort of problems that I had at home or that I was having in relationships, um, because I could just throw myself in my art and forget about, forget about those things. Um, but in my early forties, I was, I, I just decided that, you know, happiness needs to come from myself. I need to make the decision to be happy. And then my work and my relationships can add to happiness. That happiness wants to be, for me, happiness wants to be a state of being. And then everything else adds more happiness. Uh, and so I made a huge shift to becoming physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, creatively, culturally, financially happy, happy and healthy. 
Did you have a mentor? And I enjoy it so much. Did you have a mentor? I had several, several mentors, several um, therapists, several groups. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, 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 I fully immersed myself in it. I, I partly I wanted to overcorrect so that I can make this a habit to my life, and and the notion that I could have like self love abundance and how that could 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 expand what I'm doing professionally was really appealing to me. So I, I just sought out mentorship either online via like, you know, coaches or even just podcasts and, uh, and just dove deep into it. And, and I'm so happy. I'm, I'm happy, happy, but I'm happy that I had the wherewithal to, to stick to that. I'm so I'm so grateful that you're sharing this because I consider mental health to be right up there with physical health. It's so taboo still to talk about mental health and how important. I mean, way less taboo than it used to be, uh, but it's still so important to really touch on these. And I'm just curious if there's anything you want to add to your journey of consciously caring about you know your own mental health. Yeah, that life is just better yeah <laughs> it's just better life and yeah life and art and and even like when you're in the midst of crisis like this whole country the whole this whole world is right that it doesn't feel as devastating when you are internally happy you are taking care of your mind and your body and your gut and your and your heart and your finances it just everything you know, life can be, I guess the Buddhists say that life is suffering. And I think that the, the part of Buddhism that I loved when I started that practice uh, was that, yes, suffering, but we can be prepared for it. Yeah. And we don't have to be devastated by that suffering. Um, so I'm, 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 again, thrilled and happy. I, I, there's nothing about my old that I had that I missed. Uh, it feels at 48, it feels like I'm just starting. I don't feel 48. I feel like I'm in my 20s or 30s, um, both physically, mentally, and spiritually. So uh, all is good. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, uh, I, wanted, I want to jump into your journey to artistic directing. Um, I know you didn't set out to do it you know, from, from trumpet to now, which is so, so, so crazy and so cool, but how long were you performing in theater before you decided, I want to have a more you know, leadership uh, role within it? Well, yeah, and it's so funny because I don't think I really figured out what I wanted to do in my life until like my late 30s. <laughs> like <laughs> okay. I I was just kind of going with the flow and, and some of, some of the career paths um, changed when I became a dad because I, I, I remember distinctly missing bedtime rituals with my kid and, and, and because I was performing, I was at the theater doing a show every night and I was like, I don't, I don't like that. I really don't like that. Um, so professionally, I think I performed professionally, I would say from age 20 to 29. It really wasn't a long drawn out career. Um, 29 was when I decided to adopt. Um, actually, I would say 20, 20 to 30, because I think I did one, maybe two shows after he came home. Um, one of the things that happened, I was in a show, and I remember um, really getting sad when the rehearsal process ended and we were into the runs. And, I get, and sad may be a little dramatic, but I'm in theater, so I'm, I'm allowed to be dramatic. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but, but I think probably it wasn't as fulfilling as that rehearsal process. The, the part of discovering and learning and watching all the people come, 
people, um, all the elements come together and watch everyone's brain thinking of creatively about solving problems and trying something and throwing it away. I found that so thrilling. And then when we got into the performance part of it, I just got bored doing the same thing every night. Um, to the point where I would like do something different and, and get yelled at by the stage manager or the dance captain. <laughs> and, and I think once, I think once or twice I may have gotten written up by, by to the union for changing things. But I think I was always, tr I was always trying to discover and, and create and create and create. Um, so that led me sort of to teaching. Uh, I was teaching theater and dance at a couple of schools and, to be able to pass that on to the information and, and expanding the, the mind to the creative process to be able to pass it on to young people and to find out that I actually was good at it and I could see kids growing was super fulfilling. Um, my shift to artistic director was not something I imagined. It was something that was suggested to me. Um, and at the time it was suggested, I was like, I don't know, I don't, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. Hmm. But the, one of the appealing parts for me was to be able to make things happen as opposed to sitting around waiting for my phone to ring and someone to offer me a gig to right. teach or to choreograph or to direct. And so I, uh, I consider myself a self-made man and I, and I also, when something scares me, um, I tend to dive deep into it. Like if I don't understand something, I just dive deep into learning. Um, and so I uh, remember when that opportunity pop, popped in my head when that person suggested that I could become an artistic director and start my own theater company, I was like, well, let me figure out how to start a theater company first. So I joined a couple of boards and took a whole bunch of classes and found mentors and had conversations and read books. Uh, and then an opportunity came, came by to be the director of touring productions at the Smithsonian and to work with the lady I consider my second mom. And I just learned a lot from her about leadership and, and art and how art can, um, how art is in, inherently social justice oriented, how we can change the world and change hearts through our art. And that just became, I mean, like, it just fed me and fed me and, and intrigued me. Um, and so when I got my first opportunity to be an artistic director, I jumped at it and I used that title and abused that title to do a lot of stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy for all those early opportunities. Was that time with, um, and I'll, I'll call her, her your second mother, <laughs> uh, was that moment and time with her where you became very, uh, very focused on the advancement of anti-racism, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and telling those stories and having that be a very prevalent part of your, your leadership? Yeah, it was because, so at the Smithsonian, it was the Smithsonian's Discovery Theater, and my second mom's name is Roberta Gaspari. Roberta, um, okay. She's actually going to be... Yeah, Roberta. She's actually going to be starting a podcast, which I'm excited about. So oh, um, I think the world can sort of, yeah, the world can hear her thoughts. But um, she, she, the, the, the work that we did there had to be museum worthy. It had to have kind of a, a, a big idea. Um, the second component of the shows is that the, the work about the museum piece has to be authentic. So if it's about black history, the writers had to be black. If it was about Latin American acculturation issues, the writers had to be Latinx. Um, there also had to be interaction. 
and so that the audience was not just watching, but the audience was part of the, of the experience. And the last aspect was there had to be a so what factor, which is like, like a call to action. So why are you coming to see the show? What are you going to do when you go home after you have experienced this show? And so the work we did, I worked with her on three series of shows. The first was, um, uh, we called it The Greatest Stories Never Told, which was about black history, some of the stories that were left out of the history books. Uh, and correcting some of the facts of American history. The second was, uh, the other two were Latinx and Asian um, uh, acculturation issues in this country. But that, seeing all those kids come to the theater and seeing themselves on stage and experiencing it and seeing how other people, other people's eyes are open to um, the travesties of race, but also the contributions of people of color in this country, reminded me that that is what I experienced when I saw my first show. I was fascinated and hooked. And so then I became like crazy obsessed with getting people that looked like little Michael Bobbitt in the theater. Um, I was just obsessed with it. And I wanted to make sure the stories were being told in a way that celebrated our contribution and not relive the trauma that our, our families and ancestors have gone through. Um, and that work just became inherently about social justice. And so when I, did, when I got the chance to, to run a theater, like some of the immediate things I did was, was to do color-conscious casting. Met with resistance, but, but I did it. I remember uh, one of the first um, pushbacks I had was on a production of Stuart Little that I cast. I had an Asian actor playing Stuart. Uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, both of, his, both of his parents in that show were Latinx. And I remember a board member um, saying that I can't do that. That wouldn't make any sense. Like an Asian kid wouldn't have Latinx parents. And I was like, first of all, do a little of a mouse. So <laughs> he's not anyway. Secondly, right. look, at my, look at my family. My kid is Asian. He's got a black dad and a white dad. So families can look like that. Yeah. And also, children in our audiences will believe what you tell them. And so will adult audiences. Um, the show consequently got no um, criticism from, from patrons about that. In fact, the theater started, started growing its diverse audiences from the very, very beginning. What, are, what, are, what, is, your, what is your mental space when you come up against these conversations and almost what would seem like silly comments, such as the one against you know, having an Asian child with Latinx parents. Is there, you know, a way in which you respond and internalize to understand the other person when you're trying to give a, 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 what would seem like an obvious answer, but yet not, it's not so obvious to maybe the person asking that, that silly question? Yeah. Well, I already understand it. So, because I, I, I know that the end of racism will feel like loss of power to a lot of people. And so I know that it's not that people fear change, it's that people fear loss. And so when I counter that question, I understand where that's coming from. It's coming from a sense of loss, that I'm taking something away from a white artist, um, or I am, I am showcasing people that are not like, like them, on the stage, so I get that, and I also, I think I'm just defining this. Um, I also 
you know, I think, well, one, growing up studying sort of ballet and, and, and Eastern European music um, and being in theater, I am surrounded by white culture um, all the time. And so I have been in the room with so many white people that I have learned, um, I have learned to navigate that world and to still push and make things happen so that though that we're taking care of marginalized people and that we're showcasing uh, what the world really is versus what the white world is. Um, so, and so I, and what I'm, what I've recently defined for myself is that I, I think my life's work is to go into predominantly white institutions and make them predominantly multicultural. Hmm. Like that, like that excitement, even just saying that right now, I get sort of excited about, what I can do next to make that happen. Um, and, you know, I, I also believe, too, that uh, when you're talking about the billboard, we talked about before we got on the call. Yes. Um, I, I believe that anti-racism is an act of love. We are showing love to people who have never, ever, ever been loved by this country. And in fact, not only have they not been loved, but they have been violently brutally, um, brutalized. And so when you think about that, then yeah, we should do everything we can to elevate um, BIPOC people in this country and to put their stories on stage and not stories about their trauma, but stories about their, their contributions to the society. We should change our systems. We should um, relook at um, sort of hidden forms of racism in governance, finance, and marketing. Um, and anytime we identify those things, those things need to go away immediately, not slowly, but immediately. So all that stuff drives me uh, and it excites me. And I'm, and I'm glad that people are paying attention. I'm glad that people are adopting some of the, some of the things that I have been um, working on for many years. Um, so it, it's all very exciting for me. How do you feel during this time, you know, with the pandemic and um, physical distancing and not being able to necessarily do a show? How do you feel about the work you're doing? Do you are you still f making headway? Do you feel as though it's still moving along at a, at a good pace? I, I, I am sad that people are suffering. I'm sad that uh, it's taken. Uh, we have to take to the streets and protest um, to make things happen. Uh, I am fearful because I, I know that white guilt doesn't last long. And so um, how long do we have before people start migrating back to the, to the way things used to be? Right. I have, um, I of course have fears and I try to live in the present moment. So these fears aren't overwhelming, but I, um, I just think that if we return to the way things are, especially in the theater community, it will be a gigantic failure. And I honestly would be embarrassed to be a part of it. Um, and so part of me at the same time that all this suffering has happened, I am excited at how much the, the, the uh, sort of uh, how, how not good the nonprofit theater industry is in terms of like sustainability and growth and the operations of the governance side, but also in our anti-racism work. I think both of these sort of pandemics, the COVID-19 and the civil rights movement of 2020, mm. are in many ways working side by side with each other. George Floyd's death in any other year would not have had the impact that it had this year because we were all stuck at home, and so his death became like must-see TV. 
And white people could not turn away. They could not turn the channels. They had to see it. They had to see for eight minutes this man was murdered on camera. And it was like dumping a bucket of cold ice water on them. Um, so, and that, so that was necessary. Um, uh, Gladwell called it the tipping point. So yeah. both of these things happened, happened to propel us into this tipping point. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited that all this stuff has been exposed. I'm excited that people are working to dismantle it. Sometimes I get frustrated because I believe that people don't understand what an action is, an action item is. And so the frustration of allyship, that I'm an ally, but I don't do anything about it, um, is, 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 is frustrating for me. I tell my friends, I don't need any more allies. I have so many allies. My cup runneth over with allies. I'm going to give <laughs> allies away like, I'm going to give them away like Oprah's favorite things. You get an ally. You, you get, get an, an ally. ally. <laughs> <laughs> I just think a- a- allyship, allyship can be a way to absolve yourself from doing something. Right. And I've been in the room as a gay, as a gay black man where someone said some hom- something homophobic or something racist, and none of my allies stepped up to say anything. So to me, they don't count as allies. I'm looking for activists. Right. Um, so, so I'm so I, so to answer your question in a short way, I'm excited about where we, the possibilities. I'm also the other thing I I've been talking to a lot of students lately, and I'm very excited that um, this notion of theater being in a large dark space is being challenged. I think people our age are struggling with how to create theater that is not in a dark, um, large building. And yeah. I think that I, uh, uh, and I, I told my, <laughs> I told my son, I'm so sorry that we did not fix the planet the way we thought we would, we could fix it. And I'm now it's your turn to fix it or try to fix it. And I'm hoping that students are mobilized to make their theater departments like change the curriculum so that we are decentering white acting techniques and adding different acting techniques so that we, all these students can have a, a, a more um, a more visceral and broad experience of what theater can look like because we need them to, to do theater in a different way. I mean, they're going to be the leaders and the teachers and the producers and the artistic director in the next 15, 20 years. And if they do it the way we did it, again, it'll be a failure. So they need, I need, I'm dying for their ideas dying for their ideas. Uh, we should be teaching these kids world theater and divisive theater and uh, device theater and uh, um, immersive theater and digital theater and just all the things that we don't know how to do so that we come away not being screwed like we are with this pandemic. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. <laughs>